0: Faith Popcorn founded her Brain Reserve, the Futurist Marketing Consultancy, in 1974. The New York Times has called her the trend oracle. Fortune magazine named her the Nostradamus of marketing, and she's recognized globally as the original and foremost futurist. She has identified such sweeping societal movements as cocooning SOS, atmosphere, anchoring 99 lives, and the vigilante consumer. As the key strategist for her brain reserve firm, Faith and her esteemed team apply their insights to cultural and business trend truths, opening the vision of their clients, helping them reposition their brands and companies, developing new models, and innovating for sustainable growth. She's a trusted advisor to the CEOs of Fortune 200 companies, including American Express, Apple, Campbell Soup, Citigroup, Chipotle, Colgate, Comcast, among many others. With a documented 95% accuracy rate, Faith predicted the demand for fresh foods, home delivery, telemedicine, enhanced entertainment, and homeschooling, as well as capturing the spiritual tenure of the millennium with cocooning and its impact on COVID culture. Additionally, she predicted the rise of social media. Faith is also the best-selling author of four books, The Popcorn Report, Clicking, Evolution, Dictionary of the Future, and the upcoming Popcorn Report 2030, A Leap of Faith. In this podcast, Faith shares what strategists often get wrong in attempting to predict the future. She shares her view on the future of the metaverse and non-fungible tokens or NFTs, whether we are really ever going to go back to work, why employees hold so much bargaining power now, and how that will change how companies compete in the future. Ladies and gentlemen. Faith Popcorn. Faith, it's so great to have you here. And I'd love to start off by giving us an opportunity to get to know you a little bit more personally. So can you please complete this sentence for me? If you really know me, you know that. You know that I'm extremely shy. You'd never expect that, but I can see it. I'm also an introvert. And although I spend most of my time in front of large groups, I need to recharge by just staring at a blank wall.
1: You know, I've developed a good front, but actually I'm quite shy. Like if I have to go to a party, I'm very shy one-on-one. I'm less shy with 6,000 people in an audience. And I don't talk a lot about myself usually. I have developed this skill of questioning, which shy people do because it lets the other person just talk and talk, and then you don't have to say that much.
0: Now, this is a podcast on strategy, and you have helped shape strategy for many brands and companies. And so I'd like to ask this question of you, which I ask to all of our guests, and I never get the same answer, which is, what is your definition of strategy?
1: You know, that's such a funny word. To me, the word strategy is like the word love. It means everything. And it means nothing. So I guess a strategy, and I like to talk in plain term, you know, like is what are you going to do? That's what strategy is. And execution is how you're going to do it. That's what I think strategy is. And it's amazing how people like launch into something without knowing what they're going to do. So it's kind of important.
0: Now, Faith, I know you have covered so many topics and so many trends. What would you say you are most well-known for? What's that piece of insight or information that's been most adopted?
1: Well, I'm afraid it's going to be cocooning. We named and framed cocooning in 1981. It was kind of the Martha Stewart version of, you know, being cozy and being at home. And like all of our 17 trends, we watched this develop into, you know, armored cocoon, the garden as the surrounding cocoon. The minivan, which we work with Detroit on as the moving cocoon. Then before COVID hit, we started to talk a lot about everything in home. Probably in the mid 80s, we told P&G not to worry about Walmart so much because everything was going to be delivered home. And literally, and this is really uncomfortable for a shy person, especially the audience laughed. People will deliver food home. Everything's going to be delivered home. And right now, like, you know, new buildings, things will be loaded into your refrigerator from the back. So you won't even have to go through that thing about opening that annoying Amazon. Box Cocooning, I'm so afraid that when I die it's going to say on my tombstone, here she lies
0: cocooned. Can you talk to us a little bit about the process you use for anticipating trends and how you help clients frame a strategy around those trends? We have like a many-step process.
1: When we're repositioning Comcast, for example, we have a talent bank of 10,000 people, all futurists. They're makers of the future. They're working on the future. And we have a very interesting way of approaching a problem where we confab with our futurists. We have some brilliant strategists in our company that work on it. We do trend treks, see what's out there based on the issue that we're presented with. And I think it was Socrates that said, you're only as good as the questions you ask. Like you, you had some good questions. We ask some really great questions. We do a lot of brainstorming. We study hard the company's culture because you cannot introduce a positioning or repositioning into a culture that will organ reject it because then you've wasted a lot of time. And I've done that a few times. And then, for example, Comcast, we show them how they could be really useful in the home in terms of home medicine, home education, the delivery of home, changing the home environment, home work, what that's going to be like. And I say that for cocooning, the big jump, I think, in the next couple of years is how we're going to adjust to people working from home. What does that home look like? How much do we really have to get together. Can in real life, IRL get togethers be substituted with avatars in the metaverse? And that's what Zuckerberg is okay. trying to do with meta. We've been talking about the metaverse now for six years. And you know, then he changed the name. I go, see?
0: <laughs> I was hoping that you would bring up the metaverse. I know that you and your team have been familiar with the topic and talking about it long before it was popular. How do you define the metaverse and what does it mean for the future of the world?
1: Okay. So when things are bad in a person's environs, so we're running out of water, we're running out of clean air, the world is blowing up. We're using like guns and mortar on each other. We're hurting each other. The politics are high. The divisions are vast. People look for alternatives and the metaverse is very simply an alternative life started in gaming so you go into a game and maybe you stay in that game for a year or two but not all day and then the platform's developed and technology is developing so we won't need an oculus into an alternative life so we'll have our avatars gather around maybe tables and brainstorm we are already selling clothing to our avatars designer
0: clothing So the metaverse, in essence, is sort of a semblance of our actual life, but we're experiencing it vicariously through a digital interface. Is that right?
1: Yeah. And some of it will be a fun imitation of real life. Like, you know, I want an Aston Martin. Now I can have one. Krista Kim, for example, built a house called Mars House on the blockchain. And that house sold for $514,000 American dollars, $514,000 American dollars. And it was not bricks and mortar. So the metaverse and the real estate in the metaverse and the homes in the metaverse are becoming more and more real with actual monetary value. And then you could move right into Bitcoins from here.
0: Uh, Tell us about Bitcoin. How do you see Bitcoin shaping the future?
1: Yeah, it's simply an alternative currency. You know, we're not sure about our currency. We don't know if it's going to hold its value. It's no longer gold-backed. So here's a currency that lives on the blockchain that you can see its beginnings, middles, and ends. Ownership on the blockchain is guaranteed. You can find it. You can prove that you own something. I think it's going to be enormous. And a lot of people are still, you know, thinking it's a bubble. It's not going to happen. But that's what people always think when there's something startlingly different and new.
0: You've seen a lot of instances in which people or companies are slow to react to change. They underappreciate how quickly and sometimes radically change is going to come. Can you give us an example? Like, I know you've talked about Kodak before. Well, it's a certain
1: stubbornness, I think. With Kodak, we're assigned this really large assignment. I mean, and we're so excited to have it. How do you save a big American company? You know, being American myself, I was going, yes, we'll do it. So, you know, interviews and thousands of meetings and come back to them. And essentially, we say the future of film is digital. And they say, we asked you about the future of film. You were retained to tell us the future of film. So I guess they wanted me to say the future of film is nothing, is zero because it's going to be digital. So they were very unhappy with that. The reason people don't embrace the future is not so much that it's new, although that's part of it, it's because they have to change something. They have to change how they market. They have to change how they make something. They have to change maybe their profitability projections or talk in a different language. That so many Fortune 500s are not on the metaverse is really pathetic. They're just going, ah, that's not happening. I don't have to do that. Even with NFTs, non-fungible tokens, they're kind of little fortune cookies. The thing about an NFT is people want to buy or hold something original, It works beautifully if it's a poem. We're putting some of our early trend work into NFTs. You know, here's my word is one NFT we're going to come out with cocooning. It's going to have beautiful art behind it. So you can own a piece of a future projection. But no, they're putting a beer can in an NFT. It's almost like putting space junk in an NFT. That's not what an NFT really was made for. I think it's diluting its poetry, its value. Why don't people use the future? Sometimes they grab onto the future really fast, like NFTs, and misuse it.
0: Interesting. NFTs being misused. What do you mean by that?
1: Well, it changes the integrity sometimes. Like I worry about the commercialization of the metaverse because the metaverse should be clean and pure. And once companies are coming onto it or Facebook decides that it's going to diffuse all the bad things that have been written about them and they're just going to change their name and jump to a new platform and that people will forget. And I think people will forget. That's the thing. I mean, it was from a strategic, your term, strategic point of view. What should we do? That was brilliant. And he's going to get away with it.
0: That was a big bet on the metaverse for Facebook to change its company name to Meta. Now, Facebook is not exactly the most loved company. What do you think they are going to get away with?
1: Nobody likes to be the first in. And that's why the people that are the first in make a lot of money a lot of times or lose a lot of money. But they make a lot of money and they deserve to make a lot of money because they took on all the risks. I was thinking about Noam Barden. He just retired from Waze two weeks ago. Israeli guy, brilliant guy. And he said, I think I have this right. It's impossible to negotiate between a startup, which Waze was an Israeli startup, right? And a large conglomerate like Google, because large conglomerates are passion killers, they put process on top of passion and they destroy it. Now they need to do that because they need to survive in a big way. They need to control people in a big way. But look what happened here. First of all, you know, Noam Barton's beautiful piece of talent. You lose a beautiful piece of talent. But the other thing is when you take passion away in an organization. When you open the wormhole, which just happened, what was the wormhole? People were working at home, right? So they opened the wormhole. The workers, the people went home and worked from home. So you let the prisoners out of jail. They worked at home. And then the big boss says, and now come back because, you know, it's much easier for me to manage you and watch what you're doing, even though you're doing great. And you know what they're saying? No. No. And if all the workers say one thing, like that's how unions started, right? Workers win. And corporate management hasn't realized yet is that they're going to have to somehow, and I'm not ready to talk about how, that could be another conversation because we're developing some models, but the American manager has to go to the worker. It's going to happen. The management's going to go to the worker. And women who are finding, oh my God, I can actually have a cookie for my kid when she comes home. And oh my goodness, I just gained three hours of commuting time and eight hours of abuse, you know, not being recognized maybe, or a lot of women feel that way in big corporations. I'm not saying all, but a lot. I'm out of here. We said in 1990, with a trend called cashing out, we did a little study and the study said that people will trade money for freedom. You're seeing that, right? The gig worker side hustles. That's what we're seeing now.
0: Yes, yes. I have been thinking a lot about the future of work. And it seems that since the job, as we call it now, was created around the 1920s, there's always been this trade-off between either freedom, I get to do what I want, or safety, like financial security. And what I hear you saying, what seems right to me, is that maybe we're no longer going to have to make that trade-off. How will those gig workers find safety? I think they're going to be financial tools to guarantee
1: them safety, like salary insurance. Where they pay in a little bit and then if something breaks or the company goes out of business under certain circumstances, they'll be paid a salary. Also, the government, when you're outdated because a robot has replaced you, government's going to find a way to support those people.
0: So how long do you think governments will support gig workers?
1: Until their demise. I mean, this is another thing that you didn't ask about, but the cross between robots and humans are happening right now. Like at Davos, the big guys and the few women get out there and say, we love people, you know, robots can't replace people. What about decision-making and what about fine design? And they get into those rooms afterwards with a little cocktail. And this is what they say. How fast can we replace humans? How fast can we do it? And the larger companies, no names, are doing it like 30%, 40%. Robots don't complain. They don't unionize. They don't even need light to work. They don't need vacations. They don't need lunch breaks. They don't have kids to pick up from school. They don't make mistakes, usually. And that is the way it's going. The robots are going to get more and more sophisticated And become
0: not only workers, but companions. But isn't it true that robots can't think and they can't do creative works that humans can do? But they can think. I think it's fascinating how quickly humans are to project human characteristics on like your pet, for example. It's not an object, but it's not a human either. But you treat them like a human and our cars develop characters in our minds, our houses. I imagine we do this even more quickly with robots, no? Yeah. There's a
1: book out recently called Clara and the Sun by the same guy that wrote Remains of the Day, Kazuo. Yeah. and I his last name. Anyway, it's about a mom that buys her young teen daughter a companion robot and the relationship they develop. And boy, is that real. Some of it's nice because you're going to have elder care and we're going to be able to translate and transfer real intelligence into these beings is going to be robot law. I mean, all kinds of things. And talk about not wanting to embrace that when your humanity is being traded up for something more efficient, it's a little bit hard to take
0: as a race. I mean, a race in a larger sense. Think about what the dinosaurs felt like. So I heard that Elon Musk created Neuralink to guide us away from a future in which robots replace humans. What do you think about Neuralink?
1: Well, let me tell you what his Neuralink I believe is about. I'm not sharing any inside information. I think Elon Musk is very interested in knowing what people are thinking about. And when you put something in somebody's brain that can read things, you're going to know what they're thinking about. And once you know what they're thinking about, can you influence thinking? And he talks about editing memories, which could be very good for trauma victims. He talks about, you know, when you can't think of a name or you don't remember what you did last Wednesday, you can rewind. We're already experiencing that. Everything's going to be recorded. So, yes. And the CIA, I believe, has been working with pilots for a very long time using mind control to steer planes and seeing how that mind energy can actually
0: move a machine. Wow. Fascinating. I hadn't thought of that before. There's so much to dig into there, but I know we're reaching the top of our time with you. So just a few more questions. What do you think is something people get wrong when trying to predict future trends? And how would you suggest they get it right?
1: I think the greatest error that people make about the future is trying to extrapolate what's going to happen from what did happen from the past. That is a major error. The way to figure out the future and become an overnight futurist is look forward, see what you believe will happen. It's pretty easy to figure out. It can be broad strokes, you know, Well, every home will have a robot, you know, all this stuff. So you go to like 2030, 2040, backcast to 2022 and try to create a timeline. And that is how you figure out the future, not from yesterday. Because if you're doing it from yesterday, you're not taking into consideration new standards, new technology, new thinking, new countries, new anything. So you make big mistakes. You say the future of film is better film.
0: Hmm, hmm, that makes so much sense to me. So tell me, what are you working on now?
1: The thing I'm working on now is a bit weird. I worked a lot in South Africa with Investec, which is a big bank. We did some beautiful, beautiful work with them. And I made some South African friends. And then when COVID hit, I was back here in the US and I was interviewed by Carmen Mariana podcast, just like this. She has a cool podcast in South Africa. And she said, what is the one thing, that's the one thing you didn't ask me, what is the one thing you've always wanted to do? And there are other people on the podcast, but I didn't know them because they're all South Africans. And I said, the one thing I've always wanted to do is write a rock song. And she, she said, oh, meet Karin Zoid. I said, who's Karin Zoid? So this blonde young woman raises her hand and says, I'm Karin Zoid. She's number one rocker in South Africa. She said, I will show you how to write a rock song. Well, we have written over COVID 12 songs of the future. One, for example, is algorithm and blues. All of this stuff that's happening, but in music,
0: I talk and she sings. I love that idea, and I actually got a chance to meet you and Karen at my house when you brought her over for an fest party that we had with some of our chief strategy officers. I have to say, Faith, you get to hang out with some of the most fascinating people, and we are so thankful that you agreed to hang out a bit with us here at OutThinkers. Can you just tell us how can people find you and follow you
1: well i'm on all the platforms and if they want to email me and i read all emails and get back to every single one is faith at faithpopcorn.com faithpopcorn.com they can see our website or they can beam me up great (laughs)
0: love it great Thank you so much. As I say, you get to hang out with such cool people, and I'm glad that we got a chance to hang out with you today. Thank Well, you for- there's
1: certainly one of them now.
0: Well, I hope so. Thank you. You Thank are. You. Thank you to our guests. Thank you to our producers, Karina Reyes and Zach Ness, our editor, and the rest of the team. If you like what you heard, please follow, download, and subscribe. I'm your host, Kaihan Krippendorf. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you next week with another episode of OutThinkers.